Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Right, okay. We are in 2 Kings chapter 16 this afternoon. Let me just open with a word of prayer, and then we'll do our Bible study. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we get to open your word, Lord, to mine the truths that are within it. We pray that your Son would be glorified tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so 2 Kings 16. Now, if you remember, let me just recap briefly. I think it was 14 and 15, or just 15 that was done last week. And if you remember, it was a, it's quite an unusual chapter. It's a very quick succession of four or five different kings to do with the northern kingdom of Israel. They didn't really say too much about them, except that they were evil. They reigned for so-and-so number of years, and then they died, and someone else took over. And we also looked in that chapter at two kings from the southern kingdom of Judah. One of those kings was a man called Uzziah. So that gives you a little bit of understanding about the time period that we are. You remember Isaiah's famous vision, the holy, holy, holy vision in in Isaiah chapter 6, where it says he, he saw the Lord and he went up to the altar and the coal was put to his lips and he was, it was a massive expression of the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6 verse 1, it says, when he's having that vision, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it was as that king, this period of history that we're dealing with now in two kings, died that the commissioning of Isaiah took place. So Isaiah is active now. Just have that sort of in the background of your minds as we read some of the stuff that we're going to go through tonight. Israel is in a difficult time politically now. Remember, we're split. We've got a northern kingdom. We've got a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's not particularly great. The southern kingdom's a little bit better, but not particularly good. Now, in the northern kingdom, as I said, we've seen sort of royal dynasties toppling out of, you know, there's a very high turnover of kings happening, some of them reigning just for a mere matter of months, I believe. Um, So there's no security, no strength in that kingdom. And to the north of Israel, there is a new regional superpower on the rise. This is the kingdom of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which was to be the world power at that time. Now, and Israel's just this little nation underneath underneath Assyria. Now, if there was ever a time for Israel to look to the Lord for their security, it was now. But what we get instead is a man called King Ahaz. He ascends to the throne in Judah. We're going to look mainly our, our passages concerned with his reign tonight. So let's read verses one to four together, and then we'll make some comment. It says, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So in the northern kingdom, we have a guy called Pekah, and he's not particularly good. It says he does, he's, an evil, he's an evil man. And in the southern kingdom, where usually you would have someone who was kind of good on the throne, we now get a man called Ahaz, who is probably going to go down in history as the worst king of Judah. Now, we can't, well, we can be hard on him, but just bear in mind it says he's only 20. And 20 is pretty young to come to a throne, take charge of a kingdom, 
when you've got all of these political and uh, enemies round about you. So this is, you know, to put a bit of realism to it, that's how old he was. But it says he did not do what was right. And you often hear this. If you, we've been, well, we've done one kings, two kings. That's a constant refrain, isn't it, of this book? He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. We've, we've heard that so many times, almost with every king of the northern kingdom. He did not do what was right. It says he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, not of his father David. Now, this is a good illustration. As I was reading this, I was struck by one theme that you'll notice throughout the Bible is two ways. Two ways are always contrasted with each other. We see it uh, all through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament. In Proverbs, we have the way of wisdom and the way of folly. In the New Testament, I'll read a couple of verses to you. Um, uh, this is 1 John, 1 John 2, verses 4 to 6. It says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And you see that just developed all through the New Testament. Walking in light, it's sometimes called walking in the way of wisdom, in the way of truth. It's just a constant theme that we have. Um, in 2 Peter 2.15, it says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, and they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beer. So again, you have it here. You've got the, the right way, following the Lord, and then this time you've got the way of Balaam, the wrong way. Again, you see it all the time. Remember, what were the, what were the first Christians called in the book of Acts? They weren't called Christians. They weren't called Messiah. They were just called followers of the way. That was their name, and you see that title in the book of Acts. Now, interesting, as I was studying this, um, studying something else that, that crossed with this, there's a first century document that we have called uh, the Didache. It's a, equivalent would be maybe something like a Christianity Explored course today. It's like a first century discipleship manual. It was written by the first Jewish Christians to the Gentiles. Its full title is The Lord's Teaching Through the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And so it's, a, it's basically a, a short discipleship manual, manual for the Christian community as it was growing and also as many Gentiles were coming to believe in the Lord at that time. Now listen to, it, to how it begins. I'll read a few parts of it. It's all based around two ways. It starts like this. This is the first line. It says, There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between these two ways. The way of life then is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, love your neighbour as yourself and do not do to another what you would not want done to you. This is first, first century document here. This is a training manual for the first century. It says the second commandment of the teaching of the way is this. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit pederasty. You shall not commit fornication. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not practice witchcraft. You shall, listen, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. It's first century. You shall not covet the things of your neighbour. You shall not swear. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not speak evil. You shall bear no grudge. Now, remember, we might be sort of familiar with these terms because of the Bible, but this was quite radical because these things were so commonplace in, the, in this world that they were just normal, basically. And then it goes on in this document and it says, And the way of death is this. First of all, that is evil and accursed, murderers, adultery, lust, fornication, thefts, adulteries, magic arts, 
witchcraft, rapes, false witness, hypocrisy, double-heartedness, deceit, haughtiness, depravity, self-will, greediness, filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness, persecutors of, go- of good, hating truth, loving a lie, be delivered children from these things. And then it ends, the final verse is this, see that no one causes you to err from this way of teaching, since apart from it you depart from God. Now, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by history, and so to have a first century discipleship manual that is put in this format, the, way, the two ways that are contrasted to each other, I found very interesting. When you come to the, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, this, this sect that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of their documents is called the Community Ordinance. And it, again, it starts in pretty much exactly the same way. There are two ways. And it goes on and contrasts these two, two ways. And I believe it's a sort of a continuity that we see from the Old Testament, from the way of wisdom, the way of folly, the way of the kings of Israel, the way of their father David, right up to the way of the Lord and the way of Balaam. And the on and on we see these things go. It's a beautiful sort of continuity between them. Now, notice it says in verse 3, back in, back in our text now, he walked in the ways of kings of Israel. He burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practice of the nations which the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, this is one of those verses we see really the depravity of man here. He sacrificed his son. This was to the god Molech. This was a foreign deity that was introduced into Israelite by the Canaanites before them. Uh, we, I won't go into the details of our, for our sensibilities now, but it was a bronze statue that was heated up and you can imagine what happened after that. And they used to use drums and chanting and singing and all these sorts of things to drown out the noise. And this was done pretty frequently. It was done in association with a priesthood usually, usually priestesses actually, who served as prostitutes at the same time. There was temples involved. I'm guessing you can pretty much imagine that this meant there was money involved. This meant there was careers, livelihoods, well-being, and communities around these sorts of things, as there are with all religions, whether they're good or false. That's just a natural sort of progression that we see from that. Now, if you've ever studied some of the practices of the ancient Near East, you can read about them in sort of Old Testament background books and some of these things. Uh, you can go to museums and you can see some of these things. They used to be very proud of their activities. They used to put them on their, their vases and their plates and they used to make mosaics of them. Some of them are quite shocking. Um, I'm not going to go into them again now. But when we read about even some of the events in the Old Testaments, we're initially quite shocked. And when we read about someone offering uh, their son to Molech and it's rightly despicable. But then we when it's time to sort of look at ourselves, we rationalize. You know, that is a bygone era of history. It was pre-Enlightenment times. We've had the Enlightenment now. We're, we're people of reason and rationality. And we don't, you know, we've progressed since then. We can always look to ancient cultures and see the things that they did and learn lessons from them. That's often how you'll see this thing presented. Well, and as many of you who were there on Sunday night to hear Susie's presentation on this, uh, I would say, no, we haven't progressed from that in any way. In fact, we've just got extremely more proficient at these sorts of things to the tune, actually, of 200,000 a year, over 9 million babies since the 1967 Abortion Act. Now, notice the date, 1967. If you know anything about history, that's the pretty much slap bang in the middle of what's called the sexual revolution, just like in the days of Israel here, sacrificing children was connected with 
prostitution, with sexual activity, the sexual revolution, all these sorts of things. You can deny that link as much as you want. It's patently obvious from every study that's ever really been done. Now, of course, we don't need drums. We don't need chanting. We just have a different method now. We have an inch of tissue, an endometrial lining, a sac of amniotic fluid, and you can't hear a thing. Now, this is hard stuff to talk about, but the more I look at it, I really can't see much difference between these two things. Now, we don't have temples, we don't have priests, or do we? Now, we don't call it a temple, we just call it a Mary, Mary Stopes healthcare clinic. We don't call them priests, we call them healthcare professionals, maybe. Now, I'm not saying these are definite analogies, but I'm just saying sometimes when we're reading these texts and we look back and we think, well, that was a king of Israel, look what was going on in those days, we could easily turn the mirror on ourselves and say, look what is going on in our days. And we'll see here that the text makes it quite uh, explicit what the Lord thinks about these things. Now, we could say that you know, there were different reasons for these things today, but I would also say we celebrate it in just the same way today. We have people marching in the streets, we have parliaments cheering, we have laws being passed, we have nations exporting these industries throughout the globe for profit to the tune of billions of billions of dollars. Um, again, I don't see huge amounts of difference between us and them in that situation. But look what the Lord has to say about this. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 to 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, and one of the people of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and does not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him, in whoring after Molech. And that's strong language. Again, we might be jarred by the language there. The principles are not actually that foreign to us. The principle of capital punishment, nations being able to institute capital punishment is pretty much very global. Um, it's only in the modern era that we've seen most of those things uh, removed. But notice the point behind it. The point is that there's such a strong punishment for those things because it concerns something that is so important to the Lord's heart. And that obviously is... Um, <laughs> the innocent. There's one little line that's, that sort of struck out to me in a very uncomfortable way. It's verse 4, and it says, If the people of the land close their eyes to these things, then they're equally guilty, pretty much, is what it's basically saying. The people of the land close their eyes to it. Now, now again, I find this uncomfortably challenging because even those of us who object to some of these things do we tolerate them? You know, that's, uh, I'm not going to say yes or no, but I'm saying that's, that's a discussion. Now, you remember when you read in the kings of Israel, we see it with, with this king here, uh, not this king, the good king that we read about last week. Even the good kings of Judah, you'll notice it says they did right by the way of the Lord, but then you'll get that little phrase, but they didn't remove the high places. Are you, you familiar with that phrase? They did loads of good stuff, but they didn't remove the high places from Israel. And that always strikes me as being, you know, we read it and we think, well, that's weird. Why would they, you know, they've done all these good things. If I was king, I would have got rid of all the high places. And I was dwelling about, 
uh, you know, what, what is that really speaking about? And I think it's really pretty much the same sort of thing. The high places were so ingrained and intertwined in the political and religious life of Israel that even the people who wanted to get rid of them probably couldn't really do it in one go because they didn't have the power to do it. Just like as we today, we might walk past some of these places where these things are going on. We know what's going on in there is wrong. We disagree with it theologically, but we still walk past it. And I'm not saying we should do anything, you know, you don't have the means to really do anything else because it's so intertwined with our society, laws are made and all these sorts of things. That was probably the same sort of thing that was going on in Israel at this time. Now, the king obviously had much more power in those days. But as we know from reading the book of one and two kings, <laughs> being on the throne was probably one of the most dangerous places to be in those kingdoms. And that was not just the throne of Israel. You read the history of thrones in this country, thrones in most country, being on the throne quite often put a target on you, you'd have uneasy alliances, you maybe didn't have the power to do all of these things. Now, another thing that's interesting is that, and you'll find huge debate about this in rabbinic literature, why do you get this command in Leviticus not to sacrifice children to Molech? You'll notice it's in the very same chapter that then goes on to lists all of the, the sexual practices that God outlaws, these, these passages that are so controversial in our day and age. It seems almost like you know, to the modern ear, where one thing doesn't, where these things don't really shock us. Why are you even making an association between those things? And this comes back to the issue. The real issue is, you see, life is a gift of God to his image bearers. All human beings are stamped with the image of God. That is why life is so sacred. That is why the punishment for taking the life of another image bearer is so harsh, because no one as a fellow image bearer has the right to do that. It is only God that has the right to do that because he is the source of the image. And anything that represents his image, he has complete control over. But us, we don't. And that's the basis why in Genesis you find capital punishment. The severity of the punishment was supposed to teach about the severity and the importance of the crime, basically, that people are stamped with the image of God. That's why life is sacred. Now, you find these things connected with things about sex because sex is a covenantal gift that he gave his image bearers, which gives them to the ability to produce more image bearers. And that is something that is unique to us. And it is a gift, and we have to think about it in that light. And that is why these things are connected, I believe, because they both involve taking the life of innocent image bearers. Now, you can read Leviticus 20. You might be able to just dismiss it in some of your minds as a, you know, this is what a lot of people do. It's a bygone era, and we're not bound by mosaic legislation anymore, so why do we apply those things? And as always, there's a half-truth in some of those arguments, but you have to remember the God that gave the Mosaic legislation is a God that doesn't change. And if there are moral principles in those things, they come from his being and God doesn't change. Now, interestingly, you can read that chapter. And has anyone heard the term zeitgeist? If I say that to people, know what I mean. It means the, the spirit of the age, basically, is, is another way. The zeitgeist, people say. The spirit of the age. You can read that chapter, starting with the top and go down to the bottom. All of those things that are mentioned that were prohibited by God 3,000 3, years ago to that stage, 4,000 maybe, um, are the very things that are actively encouraged and celebrated in our culture today. Three and a half thousand years has passed, but mankind is no different. Okay, this is because mankind doesn't change. We are fallen image bearers. 
We have potential for great glory in one sense and human flourishing, but we have this problem of sin. And this is why as we read the history of the kings of Israel, we see this thing going over and over again. And remember, at the same time as we see these things happening, the prophets are being called, Isaiah is being called, and he is coming with this message. And the message that all these prophets like Micah and all these people who are contemporary to these kings, they are coming with that message of hope. And they are, the, the message they have is that there is one who is coming who is going to solve all of this. And he will be the way of blessing, as they say, that he will be the right way, not the way, way of life, not the way of death. And the question is whether they accept him or not. Now, again, there's theological implications. Um, all of these issues, and I'm kind of speaking about them in veiled references because I'm trusting you all know what I'm talking about. We don't want to go into them. I want you to understand the spiritual battle behind these things in what are often termed culture wars. Okay, I don't like that term, but it's kind of what we, we all know what we're talking about, the culture wars. Don't get deceived by the political manoeuvring, by vote pandering positions on different things. When you engage in these issues, politics is an area where Christians must be engaged because we have a worldview that speaks to every area of life. And you, know, you have to understand these things. There is a spiritual background. The world doesn't see that because they don't understand the ways of the Lord. They don't understand the reason that we're here. So of course you're gonna get, you know, what does the Lord say? You're walking in a dark world, his word is light. These are the things, it's a light to our path in a dark world. We have to understand the theological implications and you will take that with you. And I know we're coming up to election, I'm not gonna talk about these things, but just understand as Christians, we have to have a worldview that takes into account all of these things. There are some things that relate to politics and voting that are abiblical. You can have strong views either way and you can disagree perfectly. You're not going to open the Bible and find a yes, no on them. There are some things that you open the Bible and you will find a definite principle that God wants you to put into action and you must take that with you in the way you, you act and do these sorts of things. And it's up to you to figure out whether this is a primary or a secondary, whether you hold strong views on something that's actually secondary to something that God has said is more important. And that's one way that the Christians can be informed as we move forward uh, in culture and in life, really. Just as the Didache said all those years ago, there are two ways, one to life, one to death. One's the spirit of the age, the other is the spirit of truth. One leads to death, one leads to life. Notice also in verse 3, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. You see, this explains the question about why Joshua was called to do what he did when he entered the land. Again, we've studied through Joshua. We know there are some passages in there that are hard for us to get our heads around to understand because we are living in a culture that is post-crossed, firstly. Um, you know, Christ has come, so things are very different. But these texts give us some insight into it. Deuteronomy 9.5, it says, I'm not choosing Israel. It says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again in Leviticus 22, it says even stronger language, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Now that's a strong imagery. It says that the wickedness of these nations was so strong that the land was literally vomiting them out. 
So when you understand and you're reading about the conquest of Joshua, why God brought them into the land, this must be in your head, that what was happening in the land was such, uh, uh, you know, an image bearers were being abusing other image bearers which as we've seen is the highest crime in God's sight and God was going to bring judgment just as a cancer in a body will eventually infect the rest of a body so the evil of these people in the promised land would eventually corrupt the entire land and it had to be removed that's one way you could think about it God had to remove them the difference is Back then, in the days of Joshua, Israel was set up on this world as a theocracy. God was going to rule through those people, and he used them as the instrument of judgment on this wickedness. And that's the bit that we often find jarring, but that was a different age and a different principle then. The difference is, that was the theocratic kingdom of Israel at that stage. Now, after the hope has come at the appointed time, God himself came to earth, He was the one delivered into the hands of evil men. He took the judgment for sin upon himself. And it's these principles now that while we see these things are not happening in the same way as they did at Joshua, God was made literally to be sin. I think we've barely even scratched the surface of what that verse means in 2 Corinthians when it says he became sin for us. That's all of those things we've just been reading about, those despicable practices of the nations. Everything that goes on today was poured upon Christ on that cross when he did it. And that's why you don't have theocratic kingdoms today. That's why you just have the gospel now, which looks forward to that one day when again God will come and will set up his eternal kingdom, which where all these things will never happen and they'll be abolished. And you see, only when you understand the full scope of the Bible in this way will you be able to sort of place these things in a comprehensive overview or worldview or meta-narrative, whatever you want to call it, that makes sense in some ways of all of these things. Now, we could say much more about that, but let's move on through Second Kings. Verses 5 and 6. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz but could not conquer him. And at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So we have an alliance being formed now by the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. Now, Syria is not the same as Assyria in these days. They're different. So you have the king of Israel buddying up with the king of uh, Syria. And what they want to do is go down south and attack the kingdom of Judah and their thinking probably is that they're going to be stronger to, 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 you know, Assyria is surely going to attack soon. And if they all come together, they'll be stronger. Now, we get more insight into this from Isaiah chapter 7. Now, this is an example where it's very good to make sure that you understand the contemporary ministry of the prophets as you read the history of the Old Testament. We struggle oftentimes with the history of the Old Testament because it's long, it's quite repetitive in many ways, but you must read it in unison with the contemporary prophets to get a full picture. Listen to the words in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It's it's referring to this exact uh, time here in, in 2 Kings. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Let's read a few more verses. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz 
and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramalia, because Syria and Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up to Judah and terrify it and conquer it, and we uh, and set up the son of Tibil as king. So Israel and Syria wanted to take over Judah and set their own man up on the throne. And here we have the Lord intervening, because the Lord knows that Judah ultimately cannot be wiped out, even though there's an evil man on the throne, because Judah is the line through which one day the hope the Messiah will come. So God's promise is connected to them. So he sends Isaiah, and Isaiah says to Ahaz, don't, you don't need to be afraid, the Lord's not going to let this happen. And that's grace for a man that is doing the things that Ahaz was doing at this time. However, we know that Israel and Syria weren't particularly strong. They couldn't actually defeat Ahaz completely, but they did cause quite a mess. We know from Second Chronicles, 120,000 men of Judah were slaughtered in that civil war. Uh, 200,000 women and children were taken captive. And as you can imagine, that means your military is fairly defeated, your, your population's in ruins. Uh, as you would get after a war, you can't just rebuild quickly it takes time so they have a civil war and now they're they're worse off than they were before pretty much ahaz is in quite a state people have lost life and all the time remember you've got this big strong empire of assyria up the top just sort of waiting because we know it's only a few years until assyria does attack and completely obliterates and wipes out the northern kingdom at this time so this is all on the horizon but as i was reading this you see there's an application that we can make Their own infighting had left them weak and unable to see the trouble that was coming. And I think we can take a lesson from this in the church because if you follow a lot of what goes on uh, in in, the the church, Christendom at large, we're often very busy fighting amongst ourselves. We're debating furiously over secondary doctrines within the church. We're debating over styles of music, styles of worship, festivals, all sorts of different things that we spend huge amounts of time on and often it just leaves us weak exposed beaten up and that's before assyria or the devil has even started to attack in that sense this is one thing that i think we can take a lesson from many of us will know that some of the greatest and most painful experiences in churches come from these sort of infighting that we experience you know, if you, if you haven't experienced that, you know someone who has experienced those sorts of things. We see it over and over and over again. Now, this is a time where we need to just take a little lesson from the kings of Israel here and stop. Now, let's go on, verses 7 to 9, back in Second Kings. It says, So Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son, Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's houses and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Rezin. Now, again, what makes this whole section a little tragic, as you can see what's happening here, Ahaz is turning to the king of Assyria for help as he's being attacked by his own people. But, again, learn from the ministry of Isaiah here. Before Ahaz did this, 
the Lord sent Isaiah to him in person to give him a direct message from the Lord. And it says the Lord offered him a sign of assurance that he was to trust God's protection against Israel and Syria, not to go to the Assyrian Empire for help. Isaiah 7, verse 10 to 14. One part of this verse will be very familiar to you. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you, weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a sign and shall call his name Emmanuel. We all know that. We're coming up to Christmas. That's a Christmas card verse. You hear sermons on that particular part of the verse, and it's quite right to do that when we see it applied in the New Testament. But in its original context, that was a sign for King Ahaz that there was going to be a miraculous, something miraculous happening to, as a sign for him that he was not to go to the king of Assyria for help. And you notice, I believe, under the pretense of holiness, he says, ah, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. So I'm not, going to, I'm not going to listen to your sign because I wouldn't test the Lord like that. Now, what I really believe that shows is that it really shows his heart. He wanted to go to the king of Assyria there. This kind of probably strange looking prophet had come up to him with this strange sort of message that maybe didn't make huge amounts of sense to him. But the king of Assyria was powerful, had all the soldiers, had the, had the armies, had the money. He was much more comfortable going to the king of Assyria. And notice what he says to the king. He says, I am your servant and your son, come and save me. Now, if there ever was a cry of a king of Israel that was antithetical to the throne of Israel, it's this. Because so many times throughout the Bible, we hear the Israelites are told not to go to the world. First, it was Egypt. Don't go to Egypt for help. Don't go to Assyria for help. You come to the Lord your God for help. But he says to the king of Assyria, I am a servant and your son. It's back to those two ways again. Do you trust in the Lord? In this sense, do you trust in the sign that was given, Emmanuel, God with us, or are you going to trust in the world, the king of Assyria, to save you? What a picture we have, really, in this, of the ultimate decision that we have in life. You see, later on, this sign that was given to Ahaz becomes the sign of the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus came to earth at that time. People must either trust in that sign, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the king of the Jews, or they reject that sign and they trust in a lesser king, the king of the world, in that sense, to save them. And that, in one way, is the most important decision anyone will make. There's two ways to life. What is, what is it say in Deuteronomy? Choose life. That's a famous verse. Choose life. I've set before you life. These are the common refrains throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But notice, he chooses to go to Assyria. And it also says he took silver and gold to the king's house. You see, the world gives you nothing for free. We see here, he chose to get help from Assyria, which left Judah in bondage to an even more powerful enemy than the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, um, the wrong choice will cost us in this area. You see, in this case, he, was, he took what was supposed to be for the Lord's service, the treasures from the temple, and he gave it away to the world. And again, as an application, as I think about this text, I ask myself with what God has blessed us with, how often do we waste the Lord's provision? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we, we all miss things, but whether it's financial or spiritual or whatever we're talking about, 
Sometimes we simply act in the flesh rather than trusting in the Lord. How often do we think that merely having money would get us out of a situation? Now, I'm not saying denying the the physical needs that we all have on our lives, but how much do we really trust in those things as opposed to trusting in the Lord? In distress, do we look to riches, money, power, just like Ahaz did? Because that's what Assyria was offering him at that time. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew, you cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. These are the same sort of principles that we're seeing here. And it says in the text that the king of Assyria listened to him. Of course the king of Assyria listened to him. He was offering him gold and money and really not asking him to do anything particularly hard. Assyria was a massive empire. The small kingdom of Syria and Israel were not particularly big opponents for him. So Ahaz sold his soul, and with it he sold the nation to the help of Assyria. But did he end up better off? Second Chronicles 28, a parallel passage, says this. So the king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Notice, he afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Assyria did not care for Ahaz. He didn't care if he helped him or not. He'd got the gold, he'd got the money, and he just came down and massacred a lot of people. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and the princes, and he gave tribute to Assyria, but it did not help him, it says in the text. He was left in servitude to an even bigger and more worrying enemy. And this reminds us of the deceitfulness of sin. It says in the Bible that the pleasures of sin are just for a moment. But when that moment is gone, you'll find yourself in even more bondage than you were before you committed that sin. This is exactly what Ahaz finds himself now. He disobeyed the Lord. He went to the world for help. He gave them money. And what did he get in return? Nothing. In fact, he got an even worse enemy, he got a worse position, and his kingdom was almost on the brink of destruction. This is bondage. Let's read verses 10 and 11 now. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details, and Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it, King, before King Ahaz arrived in Damascus. So Ahaz now goes to Damascus. He wants to meet the king of Assyria. He's schmoozing him here, basically. He wants to pay homage to him, say thank you, try and buddy up to him. And he sees this massive pagan altar that, that he's built there, and he thinks, all right, that's going to be great. I need one of them in, in my kingdom. So he calls his, his priest, his man in his pocket, and he says, hey, can you make an exact model of this pagan altar and stick it, stick it in our area? And that's basically what happens. He wants to please his new master. And again, I find this fascinating. How often do we see through church history in movements of the church that we wishy-washy around certain things, trying to curry favour with the world to make it look like we're not that different to the world and we want to be accepted by the world in many ways. And what do you need to get that accomplished? You need Uriah the priest. You need a priest who is willing to be an enabler in what we call the apostasy. You need a religious leader. And if you study every movement, pretty much, I haven't studied every movement, but the ones I've looked at, it's always the same pattern. There's always a religious man at the front willing to put these things into practice. You remember in the 1920s, that's when liberalism as a movement really took off, and it came into the church through German scholarship, 
and it ended up with what we call the documentary hypothesis. So this is where you started getting all these views that so Isaiah didn't write the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah didn't write Jeremiah, the, Moses had nothing to do with the Pentateuch, and all these sorts of things. That was the effect of liberalism in the church. And the people who were pushing that were German higher critical scholars, they were people in clerical garbs. Who was it who opened up the geneal genealogical records to the Third Reich in Nazi Germany? When they were hunting everyone with even sort of one-tenth of Jewish blood, they needed the genealogical records. It was the church that handed them over to the Third Reich because at that time, they had the third, one of the ways, if you study the Third Reich, it's fascinating because they were very intent on making sure that they replaced all youth leaders and church leaders with their own men. And they took over all the professors at the institutions too because they knew if you want to control a culture you have to have the social institutions and you have to have the educational institutions and they were the first things they targeted and it wasn't done instantly it was done gradually step by step but then when they had their men there well world yeah, second world war and these sorts of things happened and that's a, a very scary lesson for us today and what do we see just recently this week i saw um, the national abortion federation named Catherine hancock as their new president and CEO. She is an ordained Episcopal minister whose ministry is advancing abortion on demand. She preaches that abortion is a blessing and she's called abortionists modern day saints. You have to have a Uriah the priest, an enabler at this time. You see, in Second Peter it says this, false prophets also arise among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who brought them. Now that word, destructive heresies, in Greek it's fascinating. It means truth alongside error. That's why it's so difficult to spot, because it says they will bring in truth alongside error. And you must be aware of that. That's why you need to just go to the test everything with the word of God. Right, let's quickly finish up. We're getting to the end of our time. Let's just finish up uh, this, the rest of this chapter. 12 and 13, and when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar, and then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it. He burnt his burned offering, his grain offering, he poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and the grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering, their drink offering and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded and King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands, removed the basin from them. He took down the sea from the bronze oxen, they were under it and put it on a stone pedestal and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. King Ahaz was enamoured with the ways of the world so much that he copied their altar, he brought it into his own house. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in it. Now I want you to notice a couple of very important things. Probably some of the most important observations from this entire chapter. Because the king had compromised with the world, with the king of Assyria, what happened? You find them in this text, and they might not mean much to us when we just read it historically, but as we make an analogy, two things happened. The pagan altar came in, and what did he do? To make room for it, he had to remove the bronze altar, 
put it off to the corner. He removed it out of its place. And what does the bronze altar speak of in the tabernacle and the temple? It's the sacrifice. It's Christ. It speaks ultimately of where Christ was sacrificed. It speaks to us of Christ. You see, when you think that you can live with the help of Assyria and the help of a world, one foot in two kingdoms, God, man, and all these different things, trying to live one way and the other way, one thing will always happen. The centrality of Christ in your life will be pushed off to the side. Just like when this altar came in, Uriah just said, there's not enough room, take our altar and stick it out in the courtyard. And that's exactly what happened. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But notice, it's not only the altar. The basin was also in the way this massive bronze basin that was on top of these oxen. So we had to remove that too to make room for it. And what does the bronze water speak to us of? The word of God. The priests were washed there. This is the word of God. It speaks to us of the word of God. When you compromise with the world, whether it's corporately as a body, whether it's doctrine, whether it's social, whether it's morality, whether it's as an institution or as individuals, as moral beings, when you do that, the word of God will always be removed from the picture you cannot have both the word of god and christ must have preeminence if you want to bring in the king of assyria you will make room for it by getting rid of one of the others and thus starts your decline and you will follow the ways of the kings of israel rather than the ways of his father david and as we're going to read tragically this is exactly what did in fact happen to the kingdom of judah in the first few chapters of jeremiah i won't read the text now but you'll find the reasons given are that the priests have rejected the word of God, they've rejected God, they're foolish, they don't know the way of the Lord, they don't know the ordinance of their God, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them, and it even says that they have rejected the word of the Lord. And then Jeremiah also says, do not, please, basically, he says, do not learn the ways of the nations. Right back to the things that the people were doing in the land before the Israelites came in. You see, this is what happens when you follow the way of death. Now the last verse. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Notice just in the verse before it says, because of the king of Assyria. Ahaz and Uriah did everything that they did because of the king of Assyria. That tells you who's pulling the strings. And when you see these sorts of things in the church, know who is pulling the strings behind these things. And it's not the Lord, because the Lord would never remove his brazen altar. He would never remove the, the, uh, the basin. You know, Christ would always be central. The word of God would always be central. Anything that pushes them to the side comes from the king of Assyria, ultimately. You see, we need to know one of the other acts that it says here that are written in the Chronicles, Ahaz actually ended up shutting the temple down altogether. He didn't just remove the furniture. He actually got to a point where he said, nope, we're shutting it down. And that's ultimately what happens. So I would say, may we heed the warnings of the prophets and apostles. May we learn from the mistakes of the kings of Israel. And I will just end with those two lines from that first century discipleship manual. There are two ways, one of life, one of death, but a great difference between these two ways. As we've hopefully seen tonight, may we walk in the light and in the way of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word, Lord, for all the truth that it contains, that it is a, a lamp unto our path in this dark world. 
I pray for all of us here now that you would put these truths into our hearts and through your spirit you would give us power to live and obey them, Lord. And we would do this, Lord, with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.